Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way. This is a podcast for serious writers who want to develop their skills in artistry and stand out in a crowded industry by taking intelligent, creative risks. I'm your host, Jonathan Ball. I hold a PhD in literature. I'm the author of uh, numerous books, and I take a very analytical approach to art making, emphasizing both efficiency and experimentation. My guest today is Keith Kadju, who visited my creative writing university class, uh, and uh, I did a recording of the class where he responded. We did a kind of discussion, me and Keith, um, in response to a variety of questions that students had written down for me to ask Keith uh, and to just discuss myself. In the final class of uh, my creative writing courses, I just answer student questions. Um, so you won't really uh, hear the students necessarily in this recording, just because of the way the room was set up. Um, you know, uh, we didn't really have the opportunity to record the students. Uh, also, I just you, know, you you might hear a couple of them talk a little bit, um, but for the most part, I've repeated questions or just cut them out, uh, either because they requested to have their voices cut out or um, simply because they just weren't audible on the recording. Um, but uh, Keith. Kadju, uh, who is an author of you know horror and weird fiction, uh, and also you know quote unquote literary fiction. Uh, Keith Kadju uh, has an excellent book called Gaze, a novella out that we discussed briefly in the interview. Um, I'll link to that uh, novel novella if you st- if it's still available. I would encourage you to get it. Um, it might be very hard to find. His newer book is an anthology he co-edited with Dustin Gearart, and it's called The Shadow Over Portage in Maine. If you're a fan of my work, um, you'll want to get that anthology as well, because uh, I'm in it. I write the uh, introduction, but also I wrote a short story under the pseudonym Richard Crow. Um, so I would recommend uh, you know, the other uh, people in the anthology as well, uh, Really some excellent, very strong, very diverse work. Again, it's called The Shadow Over Porridge in Maine. Links to that and to case other material uh, will be included in the show notes, uh, which is available at jonathanball.com slash two. jonathanball.com slash two. So uh, without further ado, here's an interview with Keith Kedu. Um, one thing just quickly note about this interview is that it's in two parts. It's a very long interview, so I split it up over two parts. Uh, so here's part one of the interview with Keith Kedu. Again, answering a lot of different questions, him and I both, uh, in response to student inquiries. Uh, so enjoy. So I guess at this point, I'll just say, you know, welcome to Keith Kedu. Uh, we were <laughs> talking about how French he wants to be, yeah. um, which I guess, you know, Kazu, I believe, is the Frenchest you can get. Um, I think it's funny that parents don't say it that way, though. What, no, what do you typically say if you My parents yourself? cannot speak a word of French, yeah. nor can my grandparents. Hence the, it, it's Kazu or Kado. Kado. <laughs> <laughs> Which funny. has led to many misspellings. My, my, one of my work IDs says, the, like, the word Kado, like, present... Uh, in French, like the translation for gift or present is cadeau. Oh, okay, sure. Um, so that's how my name tag appears at one of my jobs. <laughs> yes, yeah, so Keith Gift, uh, but cadeau would be the French Frenchy way. But so, and you uh, are an author, of course. I mean, you've published a novella. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a novel slash novella. It's his own book called uh, Gaze, 
which is, uh, I, I like to call it a horror story. I guess it's kind of arguably uh, not a horror story, but I, you know, I think mm-hmm. it kind of fits in the realm of horror. And uh, you've also got this anthology that you edited, uh, which you have a story in as well, mm-hmm. um, uh, which is what we've been looking at today, The Shadow of Reporters in Maine, Weird Fictions, uh, which is edited by you and Dustin Gearhart. Mm-hmm. Which I'm probably also saying wrong. Oh. I, I, that's how I've been saying it too, and he uh, hasn't corrected me. So. And um, one thing that people just wanted to ask about in the kind of prepared questions is what writing community do you feel you belong to, genre or style wise? Because, I mean, here's this anthology that says weird fictions. You've got this novella that, on one level, you could argue is kind of literary realism, uh, more or less, but has this, you know. I'm sure I remember if it actually tips in supernatural at any point. If I recall, it's not clear, mm-hmm. but I'd have to double check it. It's it's pretty uh, ambiguous. That's fairly by design. Um, I would like to be a horror writer. Like that is definitely the vein that I most ascribe to. Uh, and I think weird fiction is an offshoot of horror or a very specific kind of of horror. There there is like. Weird fiction that isn't horrifying is r- much more rare sure. than weird that hits any other note or vein. So it, it does seem to be primarily an offshoot of, of horror writing. Uh, so yeah, I would I would go with horror writer, despite you know the the negative connotations uh, that come with that, uh, which you know are sort of slowly being sh- knocked down. But if I if people ask what I what I write and I say horror, I get I get the look. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So and that's fine. That tells me that you do, you don't want to read what I write anyway. That's that's cool. Um, and yeah, weird fiction has become a, a a more mainstream term in the last little while. And it's it's weird fiction is great because it can cross more genres. So you have like Jeff Vandermeer, who is definitely mm-hmm. doing more sci-fi weird. But a lot of it does have that horror connotation. So, like, this, the Southern Reach has a lot of horror in it, though it's more, maybe more arguably a sci-fi story, but it has, like, this cross-genre aspect of it. Um, Can you maybe talk about what you think? One of the questions is, what, what are the actual elements of weird fiction in your view, mm-hmm. which, which is a little bit contentious. Yeah, absolutely. A, a, actually, um, you mentioned Jeff Vandermeer. I've got a book here. It was edited by Anne and Jeff Vandermeer, and it contains all sorts of um, authors, um, you know, quote-unquote, it's called The New Weird, uh, and it has, you know, authors from, you know, Clive Barker to, you know, classic kind of authors in that vein, like, more traditional kind of, he's not really a traditional author, but he's like an old, older now, more established mm-hmm. author. People like Thomas Ligotti, who are very uh, well-known in that community, yeah. but not necessarily well-known outside of it. Uh, and then, mm-hmm. you know, people like Jay Lake, who, you know, sometimes more are associated with science fiction, uh, and so on and so forth. Vandermeer, as you say, is kind of, I mean, arguably a writer of weird fiction, but kind of has this almost Kafka-esque association mm-hmm. sometimes, uh, as the Gaudi sometimes does, and so yeah. on. But, but what, do you, what do you see as, like, the elements of weird fiction? Because it is a term that you know, as this old, like it gets used to refer to Lovecraft and you mm-hmm. know, people even before Lovecraft, you know, all the way back to like the late 1800s, we can talk about there being weird fiction. Yeah. I think you're right to point out like there's maybe more of a interest or explosion of it of late. And, I, and it's, I'm curious to know what you think about weird fiction generally, like mm-hmm. maybe why is it of interest to you and to just what do you think it is? Um, 
Because again, like the question here is like, what are the elements of weird fiction in your view? Yeah, I think uh, the biggest thing about so, even though I do I I ascribe it to to horror because the, I, I get and that might be just be personal taste. Like a lot of the weird stories that I like the most, they are scary. Uh, but what I think defines weird in terms of like its own mode or like that separates it out is that uh, there is just it's there's something wrong that you can't quite figure out what it is. Some, like, something's off. Uh, so, like, the Southern Reach trilogy, which goes into all these, like, what the hell is Area X? That's the whole thrust of the entire thing. And it is more science fiction-y, mm-hmm. uh, but it's got that sense. So Thomas Ligotti also has just, like, these strains of, like, just absolutely bananas. Like, there is some, like, the, the worlds that he creates are, are so categorically wrong. Uh, there, there's so many things that are, that are off about those, those, uh, those worlds or those characters, uh, the, the rules of how things operate. Uh, in t- like, the, the term weird and that, like, the contention of, like, where it comes from and, and mm-hmm. like, Lovecraft is definitely in there. Uh, there are definitely some stories that are more uh, weird to that sense that I've just said where like there's something indefinably wrong or off and there are some where it's just it's a big friggin alien monster uh, but the the term itself seems to have come from Robert Aikman who like his stories are often described as the proto weird uh, but he didn't call his stories weird he said they were strange sure. so they are already there's this fight over what the, the word actually is but what I think defines his stories and that people latched onto is that the thing that is off is never really fully explained or explored is just sort of left to be unsettling um, and then uh, Shirley Jackson does that as well so that that would be in terms of where would I most like to be lumped in in terms of like what genre am I it would be Shirley Jackson-esque kind of horror the, the stop hitting that table sorry it's interesting you bring that up because I was just reading a book earlier today called by S.T. Joshi uh, which is an academic book called The Modern Weird Tale and he starts with Shirley Jackson and it goes on a great length about Shirley Jackson then he talks about Ramsey Campbell and Great Deal mm-hmm. then he has like, this later chapter where he kind of discusses you know people who are more interested in him in terms of modern weird fiction and he gets into Ligotti at that point and, mm-hmm. and Aikman and so on um, but uh, Ligotti is, to me, just one of the most fascinating people on earth. Uh, and the way I like to think weird fiction now, especially, uh, but I think it's something to do maybe with it as a genre, is kind of how Ligotti, to me, is the most extreme version of weird fiction in that uh, the way that Josh explains it, instead of you know having this sort of universe where you have like this real world and then there's like some supernatural intrusion into the real world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the idea that there's a supernatural realm and a real world that are, again, sort of side by side, but one's intruding and taking over the other in a certain point mm-hmm. in the story. Uh, the way Joshi looks at the Gaudi's fiction and, and he, the Gaudi kind of talks about his own stories is that you just don't have a real world. <laughs> you just have mm-hmm. this strange world. And especially in the Gaudi, like there's so... There's no real realism at all in those stories. You know, mm-hmm. There's really like barely characters. They barely have psychologies. The world is fuzzy. Like sometimes it's just a bunch of clouds, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> like outside of a window, and yeah. you really have no sense that it exists in, in many ways. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's just a strangeness. And Ligotti kind of talks about the 
you know, in his you know nonfiction or interviews, or even in his fiction, a lot of his fiction is just essays. Mm-hmm. You know, in the middle of like a story, yeah, and he'll just like talk about like what he, how the world is a nightmare, uh, an unreal thing that we sometimes like pretend is real, but actually mm-hmm. is a crazed nihilistic death house. You know, is yeah. uh, to me like that's the most extreme sort of that I've ever seen for weird, weird fiction, and then. Um, even somebody like Lovecraft, when you go back, is kind of suggesting that a, a advancement towards that idea. Mm-hmm. You, know, you thought the world was one way, but really, Cthulhu is the dark horror. Like, yeah. and he's very material, and he's very there um, in certain respects. Sure. Um, uh, but setting up that the universe is more against, mm-hmm. more against you than we are yeah. previously led to believe. Like, that's a big Lovecraft thing. Is you're going to believe in a god why do you think it likes you <laughs> <laughs> uh and that well like just so to mention go back to like legati settings and they're so weird I, I think there's an interesting contrast there like what like you said where normal horror will have the regular world and something supernatural invades it or impinges itself upon it and the weird might just be the opposite where the world itself is what's wrong and somebody normal is <laughs> plunked into it and uh, and in the case of Ligotti, the normal is only the reader. Like, he doesn't even bother mm-hmm. to give you a character who's trying to suss out what the hell's happening. But the weird tends to be a normal person trying to make sense of things that don't make sense um, in a conventional way. They, they just do not go together. And that leaves you with this sort of unsettled feeling. Um, that That is what... I think puts it into the horror vein because, like, the, the very unsettlingness of it means that you, you're sort of kind of like they're very rarely going to be funny or or action packed, but be. but they can yeah. be. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're usually like the, the the taste in your mouth after is is a is a scary sort of thing afterwards. So I just want to bring up a couple of the, the prepared questions about genre, and then we'll maybe just see what what people want to talk about mm-hmm. uh, before we kind of maybe look back at this. But yeah, there's a couple of questions about genre more generally. Like, what genre do you think is overplayed and in need of an original take is one. Uh, like, hmm. is there a genre you think is just kind of overplayed and kind of burning itself out and needs to be revitalized in some way? Uh... I guess, like, it depends on the media as well. Like, so books are a little bit tough. There are there are things within a certain genre that are definitely like vampires and zombies and enough. Uh, superheroes. I'm tired of superheroes. I love superheroes, um, but there's too damn many, and they they tend to repeat themselves, um, and then they self-reference that they're repeating themselves. Um, but in terms of just like a, a big overt genre, like it's hard to say. There's definitely ones that I don't like as much. Yeah. But in terms of are they getting overplayed? Like I, I think it's more facets within a genre that get overdone uh, than a genre itself. Um, I almost feel that literary realism has peaked in the 1900s in many ways. Sure. Like, I don't think it's dead, but I kind of wish it was dead. Yeah. <laughs> it it perhaps sense? gets too much clout. <laughs> Maybe that's all it is. Um, and it's, it's not allowing for a whole lot of experimentation. But every now and then there is something yeah. that falls into literary realism that, that is, that did try to do something different, but... Another kind of question, I don't quite understand this question, to be honest, uh, so maybe, you know, someone wants to clarify, but how, how do you break away from a genre that you feel is hindering your writing? Have you ever felt that, that you're doing the same, maybe just the question in some ways is like, do you feel like you're doing the same thing too much, or like in the same genre too much? Have you ever felt that? 
Um, I haven't. That might be more... Like I don't really have enough work to have... Oh, I hope I don't have enough work that readers are fatigued with what... <laughs> but I see that being more of a problem of, of people getting tired of what you're putting out. But I'm, I'm not tired of horror. Like, that's not what's doing it for me. Um, I'm wondering if the question is maybe more directed to... Um, the the connotations of being associated with that genre possibly being a, being a burden, uh, mm. which which I think they can be. And ho- like horror is one of the like I said, like when I tell people that I write horror, you get a look. Um, so then the the easiest way around it was to invent different names for the genre. So yeah. like for a long time, like right after the '90s, so we had the '70s and '80s horror boom, and then the mid '80s collapse of crap. And then everyone who was still working in horror fought desperately to call it something else. It was gothic. In the 90s, you could not publish a horror novel. You could not. No, Save your life. There was no way. Uh, so they started calling it something else. And like one that bothers me the most is gothic. They, they'll just, they'll yeah. just slap this new word on it. And dark th- fantasy. Dark fantasy. <laughs> urban <laughs> fantasy. Like, um, yeah. Like, they, they, I, I, that, I, I can see that as, as being a thing where... <laughs> Uh, by association, you are sometimes hampered by the genre, like, and that, like it's something that is like horror is having a resurgence, but something that is not that is very much still poo pooed and downplayed would be romance. Sure, um, which you know that, that it's just as like um, it, it's just as dismissive to say that that genre can't do something good as to say that horror can't um, but we're just in a moment where horror is getting a little bit of clout because people are terrified all the friggin time <laughs> <laughs> I think people also just like you've had a bunch of movies come out that you know you've had this weird I think of Get Out and like mm. you, you, we, there's been a weird moment of movies that people are like pretending oh suddenly horror is of interest in the mainstream like oh like there's intelligent horror like I, I, was, yeah. I saw some article a while ago it's like is there a t- is it time for intelligent horror? I'm like, <laughs> horror is like, and science fiction are like the two most intelligent genres mm-hmm. in many respects. Historically, the genres yeah. that specifically are using philosophical issues as plot devices, mm-hmm. you know, and so on and so forth. And um, it just, it just, you know, that kind of article is just written by somebody who doesn't know what they're talking about. Yeah. But I think there's a weird moment of like you have like people crossing into horror for whatever reason. I think, mm-hmm. I think it's actually artistic reasons because in film, at least, you know, it's a genre that has the possibility of making a film with no stars, which is, uh, you know, makes a lot of things possible mm-hmm. from, from a budget perspective, but also like it's an extreme genre where the audience is expecting, it doesn't need, but it can handle extreme material. And so, there's really not a lot of um, censorship concerns or even just, you know, material. Sure. Like, like anything you really want to do, you could do in a manner of yeah. speaking. So it's very, ra- it has a lot of possibility for radical experimentation. Plus, you can keep the budget down. Mm-hmm. And again, I think in a weird way, it's a genre that takes a lot of risks or can take a lot of risks, even if it doesn't. Yeah. Well, then, like, Get Out's a great example of, of dealing with a social issue that no one seems to really have the guts to deal with in a realist mode. Well, uh, like the message of Get Out would would not be well received if it had not been uh, couched in this the, the, the horror vein, like the, the little bit of non-realism that 
that's in there, right? Like, the, for anyone who hasn't seen Get Out, we'll just we'll ruin the surprise. But making <laughs> it making it like hypnotism, you know, does does do this little bit where you get to disembody it a little bit, so you can absorb the message a little bit. It's it's more palatable than just look how racist we are, which is essentially the story. <laughs> well, movies also have the issue of like somebody wants to make a kind of risky take a risky, you know, mm-hmm. topic. Yeah. And then or, then they're asking for $300 million to do it. You can kind of understand why somebody wouldn't want to give them that money. Yeah, for but sure. But if it's still only $3 million, you know, or, or and it's, it's yeah, a little you, different. You have a lower budget. I forget their budget, but it was and probably yeah, the, the ability to deal with stuff that's more extreme, um, whether it's social commentary or just... Uh, so, like, another movie that's fairly recently would be Hereditary. I haven't seen that um, one yet, but yeah, people talk about that. Great, there is something in there that if it were not a horror movie, you'd never be able to, to even approach doing it. Uh, but that's an interesting example too, because uh, that that movie first appeared like in, in one of the film festival circuits. Like there was no press about it; it wasn't a large release, and it, it wasn't going to get large release until it hit this uh, festival. And it sort of sounds like. They screened it, and nobody knew what it was. So, like, no one went in thinking, well, here's this horror movie. It was just, well, here's this movie with Tony Collette and Gabriel Byrne, and they're good. So let's go let's go see what it is. And it scared the crap out of them. Because <laughs> uh, it, it is this great movie where, like, the less you know about it going in, like, the, the slow build of it is, mm. is just fantastic. And so I think that's an interesting counterpoint to knowing the genre beforehand. Because um, yeah, like that—that's something too. That when you signal to your audience that there's going to be extreme stuff here, uh, like, and that's what horror does—that that you you uh, you give people a heads up of the kind of material they might they might be dealing with, and uh, because because if they're not ready for it, you never know how that will be received. And, and Hereditary, I think, shocked people because it didn't have that contract when it first appeared. That no one really understood what they were watching, and then it was pretty nuts like by the by it's a very slow burn and then the last 20 minutes are crazy um it's very good you have to go see that movie (laughs) well let's maybe jump out of horror for a little bit um uh did that kind of address the genre question like i don't know like to me like the the issue of approaching the genre like feeling stuck in it i think if if anytime i've ever felt stuck in a sense of i'm you know, maybe I should stop writing this kind of thing. Usually the answer has been to go deeper into it. You know, I'm not, I'm doing, like I'm repeating tropes as opposed to like the genre being a problem. I, and I, and, but, it, but it, you know, it just maybe it's played out. Like I played out Ooh. what I'm doing in, in that and I just need to go like further into it. Like I was thinking of creating poetry for a little while and I thought, well, before I start moving more fully into fiction, I'll write a whole book of poetry about how I'm, I think poetry's dead to me. <laughs> you know, I just go deeper into it, you know, and like, mm-hmm. what are all the things that I think are um, problems with what I'm doing? And uh, I, I like made a set of rules, like I won't do a poem like this because I've done a bunch, I won't do that. Like I was just, my, my friend Ryan Fitzpatrick will do this. Every time he has a new like big project, he'll make a list of all the things he did in his last project that he's not allowed to do anymore. Mm-hmm. And that just kind of keeps hit, things fresh for him, even though he's still kind of doing the same thing. He, he kind of just has to try different tactics and approaches because he just kind of disbars himself almost arbitrarily from doing like the same sort of thing over and over again. Mm. Um, 
So in sure. that state, where you're not like abandoning a genre so, so much as you're going deeper into it, I think. Which usually, usually like the the way out is through, like it is in Dante's mm-hmm. Inferno. <laughs> yeah, you know, like you got to go through, like, uh, and like further, and further into like hell to get mm-hmm. somewhere interesting. Yeah, although there's also like examining. Like if it's a genre that you like and you're you're worried that that your audience is not going to um, for whatever reason because of you know poor connotations or, or anything like that, um, something that is maybe helpful is to figure out what it is about the genre that you like, uh, mm. and and if can that be emphasized, and then there, there must be things about the genre that you don't, and, and then maybe that is why it has the poor connotation. Maybe you want to address that because then you can also use the genre to poke at all the problems with the genre. So uh, Cormac McCarthy would be someone who does that with Westerns. And, yeah. Um, so, like, Westerns had a, a similar, like, burnout where there was just, like, Louis L'Amour and Jack London, and, like, it was everywhere. And rip-offs of those were all over the place, all these cowboy stories. And they're all just fluffy garbage. There's nothing to them. They're the hero's journey, the John, like, the John Wayne or Shane uh, type type stuff and uh, Cormac McCarthy was like well no like none of you are paying attention to any of the history of the West or what what the connotation of any of these stories are with outlaws and uh, in cities that or towns that don't have law enforcement like you're not dealing with what actually happens to those people and he did like very brutally just bring that to the forefront and in a way that I think people maybe weren't ready for it. So like the start of the border trilogy, the first book is called all the pretty horses. That book is not about pretty horses, <laughs> nor are the rest of them or like blood Meridian. Blood which, Meridian. I had um, to read twice. The first time I had to quit reading it is the most violent book I'd ever read in my whole life. And mm-hmm. I get on a guy who reads horror novels. I never read something so violent yeah. and it was truly hard to read, which mm-hmm. I think is great. Yeah, like I, I feel like what the, my complaint about the horror genre is that you have these this intellectualized, uh, cold, detached narrator a lot of the times in horror genre, which can work. Mm-hmm. But I feel like there's this way in which, um, you know, if you're speaking of horrible things, it should be hard to speak of them, mm-hmm. uh, and and the style should reflect that uh, yeah. in, in many stories. Sure, but um, you know, Blood Meridian was one where like the, my favorite part, not my favorite necessarily, but like the part in Blood Meridian that always I remember is like when he is, there's a line in the book something along the lines of. He turned the corner, and then he saw the tree of dead babies. <laughs> you know, of course. It's not a metaphor. <laughs> you know, no, it's, it's like, not, not. There's nothing metaphorical in that yeah. book at all. He, the guy really is the devil. <laughs> yeah, it's something else. Um, but, yeah, or, like, um, using the really familiar tropes but putting them in, in a setting or something else that is maybe less familiar is a good way to re-examine it. So he does that again in No Country for Old Men, mm-hmm. where he turns into drug dealers and and cops rather than you know cowboys and banditos. Or uh, Breaking Bad is a western as well, like and very like especially towards the end where like they have like actual scenes where they have their hand over their hip kind of thing where like they they led you into it very gradually and then you're like oh here's a hat (laughs) right like it it is a cowboy story but they tricked you into thinking it wasn't um but the the actual progression 
of it is 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 quite familiar, but it, it was just plunked in a, in a way that you, you didn't see it right away. That's that can be an interesting way to expand or or play with your genre as well. Uh, let's just maybe dive a little more fully into like your specific story. In uh, people, this question is: What was the inspiration for Stuck? What made you decide you wanted to write uh, this story? And was it hard to find a you mean it's published in this book that you edited? But did you publish that elsewhere as well? No, it's no. too long. So for your <laughs> other stories, though, like you know, that maybe are more extreme. Uh, what is, like is it hard to find a publisher for some of your stuff? Oh, I think so. I have my uh, my <laughs> my current story that I can't find anyone to buy is is about a a man with a disembodied wisp of hair that becomes a Cthulhu monster. <laughs> That's, okay. that's my Trump story that no one wants. <laughs> um, so, it, it, yeah, it can be. And then horror is... Uh, it's something, too, like, where, because we're in Canada, usually you get established in Canadian lit mags and stuff first. Not very many of them want that kind of stuff. And then if you want to branch out and go to other markets that have, you know, a little bit more cred in that particular genre, you don't have anything to show them. It's like, oh, I was in Cemetery Dance, or I was like, yeah. right? They they don't, like, that That can be, like, I'm in a weird interstitial spot where, like, I've published a few things, but nothing super exciting that anyone, like, outside the Canlit scene has has seen it. I made the honorable mentions list for Year's Best Horror twice. My favorite um, horror story of yours is um, uh, the, there's, I forget the name of it, but there's a, it's a guy who uh, is basically, <laughs> the conceit of it is like this ca- underground cannibal contest. Yeah. And this guy's like a, he's like a, what's, what's, what they, it's like a food eating contest. Like those guys eat all the hot dogs or whatever. But yeah. This is like cannibalism contest. Like who can eat yeah. the most cannibalized meat. And it's this fascinating, brutal, yeah. weird story. That one is called Donner Parties. Donner Parties, yes. And uh, the trick is they have to eat as much of the person as they can before they die. Yeah, the person's still alive while this is happening. And then they, they weigh them. <laughs> but like, was that a hard story to publish? Surprisingly, no. Really? But that, I just fell into the, the right market for that opened up uh-huh. and I had it sitting and I sent it and they and they liked it because that was when I was certain there's no way no one is buying this there is no way I think so too because I think I showed it to you and you're like this is great no one's gonna buy that but <laughs> well, I was wrong I guess yeah so yeah like it, it can be and then stuck is just um it, the way it's laid out here is not bad, but if, if you were to do it in like manuscript format, it's fifty pages long, well, and yeah. that scares most like magazines away for sure. And how many words is that better. roughly? Do you remember? It's it's like fourteen, fifteen thousand word story. So maybe talk about that because so that's a novella. That's a long length for a story. Most mm. stories, but just to give a bit of context, most short stories are five thousand words or under. Yeah. Um, usually, you know, you can spot between a thousand, two thousand, and five thousand words. Now that's, and, and you'll often will have like guidelines, you know, from magazines and things that say, you know, no stories below yeah. this, like, you know, stories between a thousand, five thousand, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so once you're in the realm of 14,000 words, like it, you're in this really weird space where one, it's too long for most people to publish as a short story, but two, mm-hmm. it's too short to be a novel. Yeah. Um, and be a standalone work. So, so now your options usually are um, there's a few places that publish novellas, but it's very few, mm-hmm. uh, and they're usually more open to non-genre works. Yeah. Um, there's 
you know, you could of course have your own story anthology and maybe slip it in there. Um, or you could, you know, publish it in an anthology that happens to take longer work. So, so in your, your, your instance, you're publishing it in a book that you're also co-editing. Yeah. Um, I skipped the line. So you kind of skip. It's you know, <laughs> a bit of a cheat in that I broke sense. the rules, yes. That but was like, the cheater way to get it out. That, but like, well, that one, this is kind of related to some publishing questions that people had. had. Um, so you've got a story like that. You know, you, I mean, you did publish it, but from the outset, I think, there must be a moment when you're writing the story where you're like, oh, no. Uh, this is going to be a weird length and like yeah. should I keep going like what keeps you kind of moving forward when you're when you hit that kind of uh, like I guess mm-hmm. questions, there's a couple of questions along the lines of like what kind of things you think about in terms of publishing while you're writing yeah or do you just try to not do that um, this this one did hit like I was very self aware as it was coming together that I was uh, from that standpoint that I was shooting myself in the foot that I, it, it's too long um, it's such a slow burn of a story that was like selling to a magazine is going to be very, very tough. Uh, but it was, and uh, like I played with a few ideas to try to bring the length down. And so one was like, so there's actually two pictures in the story. Like I was like, well, maybe I should just make it one. And I like, I, d- I tried a few things that essentially broke it. Like then the story didn't work. And uh, I just, I like the story enough that I, I wanted to, to finish it. Uh, and, Going back to the question, like, what was your actual idea originally? Like, the, the where did original? you get the idea from, and like, wh- why did it stick with you? Uh, the original idea is from I can't even remember how it like some procrastinating time on the internet. I found uh, these actual death pictures. So like, what they did uh, when cameras first came around, and the exposure time was like two to three hours. Uh, so they you could sit still. That's why they all look so mad in a lot of their their photographs. Um, the most, uh, the thing that made the most sense to take pictures of was stuff that didn't move. Uh, so you took pictures of dead people rather than live people. And it was actually very close to like a death mask. So like before photography, if somebody died, you would make a wax impression of their face and then you would know what they looked like. Uh, so the next evolution of that was photographs of dead people. Uh, and then as that became sort of uh, a medium of the rich to, to take pictures of their family, uh, you, you start seeing portraits uh, of the entire family with a dead person uh, propped up in some weird, unnatural way, or their eyes drawn on their eyelids. Um, and they're, they're really, really creepy. Uh, so that, like, I had known that those existed for a while. And, and then the, the one that really threw me over the edge was uh, another set of pictures that was uh, of just babies being held by mothers who were covered over to look like the furniture. Um, So they didn't want the mother in the picture, but there's no way this toddler is sitting still for the hour and a half, two hours, three hour exposure time. So they would like put a blanket over the mom, put the baby on it, and it's like, and look like a chair. And it's unnerving. They just, they look like they're being held by ghosts. Uh, so th- it was those those images, and I, I it just stuck in my head so much. And I was like, I have to do, I have to do something with with this idea of weirdly pretending the mother's not there, but being dependent on her to hold the baby. <laughs> it was just such an odd, uh, an, an odd sort of cultural moment for me. And it, it was creepy. I tend to, like, anything that's really creepy that sticks in my mind. It becomes a story. 
So something kind of related to this, there's a couple of questions about publishing that maybe we can get into, but um, before that, there is, um, you know, so it's sort of like that, you're almost at a certain point, I think, writing it, you know, kind of feeling this is a waste of time in terms of publishing, perhaps, or at least I'm going to get lots of rejections on this thing, or like Donner Parties, that's another one where you're probably you're assuming rejections, mm-hmm. even though like in both cases you publish in the stories. I think there's the idea that it's going to be a hard sell or maybe I'm going to get rejections. And, and generally, you're getting rejections anyway. And then also when stuff comes out, like, you know, this book comes out, you're going to get reviews. You're going to get, like, critical reviews, I, I, you know, and so on. Like, one of the questions that I thought was really interesting, this uh, was um, how do you take when someone criticizes your work? Uh, you know, and, and the question also kind of goes into talk about, you know, how is it, you know, this is it normal to have this feeling that, like, you're writing a sort of a piece of, you know, gold or something precious that you have to, you know, kind of, that maybe you kind of feel personally uh, attached to or connected to in a way where it's hard to maybe take criticism. So I guess, like, mm-hmm. the question I have is, like, the, the question here is, you know, have you ever, like, is that a normal feeling to, like, feel like your work is somehow, you know, uh, golden or a part of you and, and, and to feel, like, upset or... You know, when people are criticizing in some way and then you know two like what do you do like have, have you gotten mm-hmm. like some heavy criticisms or what do you do when you get like criticisms or you know maybe even negative reviews sure that can be tough um th- this book has gotten a couple of good ones a couple of really bad reviews um and in terms of like actually feeling like there's some there's something there that's connected to me and then i like I, I would say that yeah, I, I definitely do have that, and so like that with this story too, that, that was too long, and it had all these logistical problems that are going to make it hard to sell. Um, what basically kept me going was that I liked the idea so much, and then when I tried to solve these logistical pro- problems and made the story worse, it was just sort of like okay, well I'm going to have to just dig my feet in, and I'm going to do it this way because it's better this way sure. um, and then I've done that with uh, stories that have been rejected so like when I do get rejections I I do go back and reread it and especially the, the, the amount of time it takes to get rejected uh, usually uh, you can go back and you don't remember it as well as you think you do and quite a few times I've reread stories that have been rejected and been like yeah okay this there are serious problems here uh, and then I've gone back and fixed it. And other times I've been like, no, they're they're wrong. This is this is solid. And I've sent it right back out. And then it has gotten picked up. So th- there is a little bit of that la 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 <laughs> um, mentality to it, or just or just you know it's good, so you keep you keep you keep putting it out. But it, when you know it's good and you still get the the bad review, like that stings. That's just no fun. But usually. Um, I, I, have, I haven't, so like, of the stuff that's been published that has been poorly reviewed, I haven't read a review that didn't like it where I thought it was right. That didn't like it? Yeah. It was right. So I've read their criticisms and thought, no, or, or like, it's, it's fine if you don't like it, but I, I haven't gotten to, to one where it's, it's been so destroyed and so torn apart that I'm like, yeah, it's really bad. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, there's there's still no fun to read. I really don't mind it. I, I th- you know I, I think I, I get upset when people are wrong. Like not that they're wrong that the story's not good or something, but like they made a factual error. Like they mm-hmm. think I wrote something I didn't write or something. Or they have like a stupid assumption. Like I had a line in one of my poems which was um, 
12 awaited another. So that's the line of the poem. So, of course, it's a ref, like the illusion is to, you know, the, the disciples awaiting the traitor. Um, to me, that's either obvious or, you know, maybe it's less obvious. But it's certainly not a reference to the muses, and I got the number of muses wrong. Like, are you talking? <laughs> like, no, like, you're, you're wrong. Yeah. Obviously, I know how many muses there are or whatever. Like, it's just ridiculous. Like, like <laughs> the idea that I would be writing about a thing and I specifically got it wrong... Like, that's the sort of thing that offends me. Like, sure. where you're wrong. No, like, yeah. like, you have your factor on. Like, but I don't mind if people, like, if I, I've read reviews where people are like, you know, Ball does this and he's wrong. And I'm like, yeah, I did do that. I could be wrong. Like, it's a fair point. I don't quite Ooh. agree with it, but it's a, like, I, I've done that. I, I feel like the, that, that feeling, and maybe I'm wrong with this, but I feel like that feeling of like, this is precious and a part of me, I think that is just, is often a function of not having written enough stuff. Sure. Because I think if you've only written like 10 stories that you think are really good, or you've only got like 20 poems you really are happy with, mm-hmm. I think it's a natural to feel like that they represent something beyond themselves. Like they represent your writing in a symbolic mm-hmm. fashion. And so when people attack them, I think that it's easy to, f- or criticize them on any level, I think it's easy to feel like, well, the criticism somehow feels connected to your writing as a project or as yeah. um, like as a whole thing rather than like s- specifically this piece. And I think mm-hmm. like if you just write a lot of stuff, like I think if you have like a thousand poems or you've written like a hundred stories, like at that point I feel like it just, you know, it's, it's not that your work isn't important or special or you don't feel like, you know, it, it matters or whatever. But I think it's just, it doesn't necessarily, a single piece isn't symbolic in the same way. I think it's yep. like, it's easier, I think, to, um, it's like, I think um, taking criticism helps. Uh, it's easier to do if you just have a lot of stuff. For like, sure. I really believe in quantity. It gets better over time, but there's also, so uh, like I was saying, like, there are, like, with that story, like, I knew, I knew that was how the story was going to be, but... Uh, I didn't write it in a vacuum and not show it to anybody. And, like, it was shown to a lot of people and real problems were pointed out to me all through, uh, all through the case, like, all through the writing of it. And so everything that I have written has gone through, like, these multiple stages and multiple readers before I've gotten to that point where I feel like it, it stands on its own that way. So, if yeah, if, if you have your beta readers or, or people you trust to look at it first... Um, and you've gone through that stuff and you sort of weathered a few people's criticisms, it does make it easier to take uh, the criticism in a review. How, um, how do you weather, the, like, how do you decide, though, if a criticism is correct? Like, mm-hmm. that's something we were talking about in last class, like, doing feedback, giving feedback, yeah. and so on. Like, how do you decide whether or not the feedback is right? That's tougher. I think that comes from practice and, and doing it more. Because the, the first few times, you're just you're sort of a shit about it you, you <laughs> won't hear it you won't hear anybody's criticism and then uh th- that needs to stop <laughs> and that like i i don't but they might be i don't wrong. know it, it, like, it they it, it, there is always criticism that's wrong um and so it's the same thing with like with taking right more general writing advice is some of it's going to apply most of it is not and you have to sort of develop an ear for it so like in terms of criticism that is is correct or incorrect or doesn't like it, it sort of comes down to the the piece and like is does does this person does their advice 
do they understand what I'm trying to do? And will their advice make that fun? Will it make that goal happen better? Like, or good English. <laughs> uh, like, will their advice actually make my attempt more successful at conveying this? And like, they do they understand what I'm trying to convey? Uh, I think is the biggest way of, of assessing whether or not advice, advice is good. And in order to to get at that, like, you have to have a pretty good understanding of what it is you're trying to do. And sometimes that is is unclear too and doesn't happen until three or four iterations of the same idea you may realize that like you thought you were writing one story and you eventually come to the realization that no it's it's something else and it morphs and and then different advice will start to 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 latch on in different places here's a really interesting question Uh, how how do you write a character who thinks very differently from yourself have you ever, because of Donner Parties, I think, is the example. Like, here's a sure. guy who is, I presume you're not interested in cannibalism as a party <laughs> game, <laughs> you know? But, yeah. even, you know, even if you were interested in cannibalizing people, <laughs> like, you know, it's, yeah. it's a very, this guy's still alive. Like, you know, I mean, obviously, like, you're in a very different headspace in the mm-hmm. character like that. So how do you write that character? Because I can't remember if that was a first-person point of view story, but I thought it was. Uh, uh, it's, it's not, but it's no, very, but it's, it's very, very like, third-person limited. It's very much, like, just over the shoulder of this one guy. Mm-hmm. And, the, and he's very strange, where, he, like, he rents out this, this basement apartment, so he can train to eat. And, yeah, there's all these great training, like, Yeah, moments. so that... Um, the idea for that story, if you're interested in gross, um, I was I was at uh, I was at Newburger, <laughs> and I was waiting for my burger, and they had TSN on, and it was an eating contest. It was like the hot dog eating contest. And I was just like, that's the grossest damn thing to have on in a restaurant. That's disgusting. And they dip the hot dog, and they dip the hot in dog the water. in water, and then like the ram it down their yeah. throat. And then while they were talking, they started talking to them about how they prepare uh, to do this. And they, they drink gallons of water and throw it up so that their stomach stretches so that they can hold, because they can't puke. Like, you, you, if you puke within a certain amount of time, you lose the contest. So, like, for days, they're stretching, and they all sort of look weird and distended. Um, and so, like, waiting for a hamburger, all this, I was like, well, that's really gross. And then I just started, well, that would be even grosser. What, like, what if it was cannibals? And there was like an underground cannibal eating contest. And they went to this kind of rigor to get it done. And then, yeah, then uh, the, the, other, the, the other details sort of crystallized as it, as it went through. Um, so that's where that idea came from. In terms of uh, thinking like it, so that character is probably the closest I've gotten to like a serial killer. And uh, my dad, uh, he's retired now, but he used to do DNA profiling for the RCMP. So he was obsessed with serial killers when I was a mm. kid. So I knew all about them and uh, could pick them out of the lineup and everything. So like, <laughs> I'm, I'm weirdly versed in the psychology of serial killers because of that. So that would, is maybe why I can get into that headspace pretty well. So it's just research? Like, that's how you get in the head of these characters? Like, here's how a guy who's training for an eating contest, what he would be thinking about. And here's mm. how, like, a serial killer would be. Like, is it just sort of doing research? I guess, yeah, because that is, like, I, I, I delved a little deeper and found out, like, what are different ways that they, um, that they do train for eating contests. I looked up, like, what are the records for certain to see what is, like, an actual realistic amount 
of matter that someone can put in their stomach and like it's disgusting <laughs> it's really gross um so i guess yeah like if, if you run down if like you just go down the rabbit hole of the idea and then the, the characters can sort of start to to populate that way and like i suppose that one was like i had an end goal in mind that i needed someone who would who would be in this contest so it was the psychology was was developed around getting them into that situation. What about in a story like Stuck? So, like, the, I think of the father. Uh, so here's a guy who you're not really in his head, but again, you've got to kind of, you know, have him do things that are motivated and so on. So again, mm-hmm. like, are you ch- what are you doing to try to figure out like how a guy who would want this photo? Because um, again, like you're seeing the photo as creepy and disturbing. Mm-hmm. You're looking at these photos and thinking like, how creepy is this? But yeah. he's thinking like, well, this will be a nice thing that the child will like. Mm-hmm. my son would like to have in his room yeah. so it's easy to see like where you would maybe get in the headspace of the guy who's ki- the kid who's creeped out to have the photo mm-hmm. but but how do you get in the headspace of like the guy who thinks this is a nice gift for his son sure like how do you get into that is again is there some sort of research mm-hmm. you're doing to like why people are doing these photos or what's the that's maybe a little bit of like personal experience I don't know if anyone has like you ever had a family member like a distant family member you were afraid of and you were trotted in front of them um, like like a great grandparent or, or, or someone with an illness or something, and you're a little little kid who's like, go hug this guy, and you're just like, good God, no! Like I, I <laughs> yes, like I I have had that my um, hmm. on my like a, a distant cousin, like there there was a, a a cousin of one of my family members, or like the grandmother was a co- okay, grandmother's cousin or something, um, very creepy old lady. Like, very nice, but, like, she scared the hell out of me. And her husband, who was in his 50s, lived in her house and slept in her bedroom. And when I was six, I thought that was fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, like, it was, they, like, they were family members. My my family knew them and, like, w- wanted to introduce their children. And so it was just this very, uh, go give Aunt Toonie a hug. And I was terrified of her. I didn't want to go near her. Um, but so it was getting in the mindset of like, well, my parents know there's nothing wrong. And I have since talked to them about like, did you realize how creepy this side of our family is? Like, it's, it's really odd. <laughs> um, so I guess like that is where the, the headspace that I got into for there uh, and, and for the father specifically. So something with that story that is sort of related to the idea of of the pictures of the mothers like under these curtains um, fulfilling this very important role. They have to be there, but they don't want them seen. They don't want them shown. Uh, so for this boy who's growing up, and he's, he's being told over and over that his mother is this wonderful, edifying presence in his life, and he doesn't know her. Like yes. he, does, he doesn't really have these memories of her. All he has this memory of is sitting next to this dead body, being told, this is your mother, she loves you. Um, and that would ruin your brain. Uh, but the but the dad has this Id- this idea of who his who the mother should be to the boy, and he's trying uh, he's trying to make that connection with the with the photograph. He, he he thinks that it's it's this great loving gesture because it will be this this way to crystallize uh, the boy's relationship to the mother, and that the father just doesn't realize that the only relationship that's there is terrifying. So then you so then in some ways having him being in a boarding school is like a plot device that is sort of creating this distance between like in that case there's a physical distance between like how the boy 
like the boy and his mother, mm-hmm. but then the father and the mother are in proximity. And so it sort of starts to give you the, like, pl- like a plot device that helps kind of explain or differentiate the character's psychologies, I guess. Yeah, a little bit. And like some of that came from just working within the mode. So there's a lot of ways that this story follows a lot of tropes of ghost stories at that time. So like the, the turn of the screw or, or anything else, like basically with a governess. Uh, so like yeah. I'm, I'm just shy of Henry having a governess there that there's the maid that he remembers um, that they can't afford to keep any anymore. And the, yeah, that he's sent off to boarding school. And there are a lot of stories that uh, they, with that setup and part of the sinister part seems to be that there is a lack of intimacy between the children and the parents, and the the, the parents operate on this idea that, well, the, of course, my kids would not be afraid of me. They have no reason to. And whereas the kids' pr- perspective is, I don't even know them. Like they ship me away. I, like I don't have that relationship. So that is, was where a lot of like the tension in terms of the the scare comes from. Because there's also um, for Henry, like he doesn't necessarily know that his father's motivations are harmless like he's he's sort of just as afraid of the dad as he is of the mom so what what's the best way to channel those sorts of character traits into how these characters talk like when you're writing dialogue or you're um you know otherwise sort of writing around the character like like on a style perspective or in the terms Mm -hmm. of actual language that you're using like what, what are the best ways do you think to actually get at kind of showing those character traits like in dialogue, for example. Sure. Like, what, what do you think of when you're revising or writing mm-hmm. that kind of thing? Well, I guess for this this one as an example as well, I suppose the best way to figure that out would be the difference between the way Henry speaks to Jenny and the way Henry speaks to his father. Um, is her name Jenny? Do I, have I think that? it's Jenny. Do, like, do I have it even right? <laughs> I, I mean, I mix up the yellow wallpaper because you got all these allusions to the yellow. Yeah, wallpaper, which I think little... Jenny is one of them too. Actually. Yeah. But, so, so Jenny I, is the I sister. Think, yeah. And so the I mix it up, but uh, I think that's um, right. So the, yeah, the the way Henry speaks to the the maid, the governess the, the, that he actually has a relationship with, is much more easy and open. And the with the dad, it's sort of like a yes, like a, it's a little more stilted. Um, or, or just sitting there quietly. Like, he, he actually doesn't... Like, he speaks very little. There's actually not a lot of dialogue in the story, so maybe it's a terrible <laughs> example to try to draw those kind of comparisons. But uh, that would be, like... It, it sort of depends on the character trait, but the, in terms of defining relationships between different characters or that dynamic, showing a difference between when they talk to this person versus when they talk to this other person can do a lot to establish that there. So that's the first part of my interview with Keith Kadju. Um, the second part is available in the next episode. Um, you can get show notes for this episode at jonathanball.com slash two. Uh, thank you to Keith. Thank you to you for listening. Um, please do me a favor and subscribe to this podcast. Uh, and uh, also it would be very helpful if you would leave a review or give it a rating. Um, those things help a lot in terms of making this podcast discoverable for other people. Um, If you ever want more information about this particular podcast, uh, just go to writingtherongway.com. JonathanBall.com also has all the same information. Um, Thank you again for listening, uh, and have a great week. Keep writing the wrong way. (laughs)